We continue in our sermon series on the Gospel of John today. So turn to the fourth chapter. In fact, we're going to be in the last few verses of chapter four. So you could pretty much turn to chapter five and then just look a few verses before that because we'll be finishing up the fourth chapter of John's Gospel today. And today, I think it's appropriate, um, as it is Father's Day, we're going to meet in this story today a concerned father. A father who is desperate for help for his little boy. A father who recognizes he is at the end of his resources and he's going to come to Jesus to plead for a miracle. So it's going to take place and we'll see how Jesus responds to his plea in this story today. Just as a reminder of where we've been, Jesus at the end of chapter 3 had been in the region of Judea. His disciples were baptizing people, and his ministry started to gain attention and attraction, and people were coming to him. And so the Pharisees, the kind of religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, began to get interested in Jesus' ministry, not for their own benefit, but because they were perhaps threatened by his presence and his growing influence. And so when Jesus learned that the Pharisees uh, had kind of caught on to Jesus' ministry, he left Judea to head to Galilee. But of course, you remember, as we spent the last uh, few Sundays in the fourth chapter of John's gospel, that he didn't go straight to Galilee, and he didn't get there just yet, because he went through the region of Samaria, where the Jews historically and traditionally would have actually gone all the way around Samaria to avoid uh, intermingling with these sort of half-breeds, they would say. Uh, But Jesus intentionally goes straight through Samaria, and he met with a a woman of Samaria in a small village, or outside the village of Sychar, at a well. And so we spent two Sundays looking at Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well, and he offered her living water that would quench her thirst forever and become in her soul a, a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then last week, we looked at the response of the Samaritan villagers in the town of Sakar, because the woman, as soon as she received this gift of living water, if you will, ran straight to the village and told all the people there, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And so the villagers from Sakar come out to the well to meet with Jesus. And in fact, they invited him to stay. And Jesus stayed with them for two days, stayed in their homes breaking bread, having conversation, and many of the Samaritans believed. Many of them had believed at first because of the testimony of the woman. And then it said at the, uh, at the end of the passage we looked at last week that they had actually said, we no longer believe because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So Jesus' pit stop, if you will, in Samaria, by all accounts had been totally successful right? So he had had this great encounter with this one woman, and then that led to opportunities with a whole village, and their reception of him and belief in him uh, was, uh, was very warm and eager and ready. And so our passage today begins in verse 43 of chapter 4. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, the two days being the days that he spent in Samaria at the invitation of the local villagers. And so as he departed for Galilee, again, we're really just continuing the journey 
that began in verse 3 of chapter 4, where it says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. That was when he was leaving because of the Pharisees' attention to his ministry. And so now that he is finished with his sort of divine appointment in Sakar with this woman and these villagers, now he continues his journey toward Galilee. Look in verse 44. So it says he's begun the journey again to Galilee. And we have this little statement in parentheses. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Something of a, a proverb of the day. The prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And I think hometown here probably would represent the region of Galilee because Jesus grew up in a little town called Nazareth which is in this region, the northern region of Palestine called Galilee. Uh, and so he grew up there, uh, was a car- learned carpentry from his father, Joseph. Uh, and so when he says there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown, he's probably not just referring to Nazareth, but to this region of Galilee. And it's interesting that that's the reason that it says Jesus is going to Galilee. Because look at the word for. It says he departed again for Galilee, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So the lack of honor that Jesus would receive in his own hometown becomes the very reason that he goes there. And I think it's because he recognizes their need. There is a great need for these people to have their eyes open and the blinders removed so that they could see who Jesus really is. But I think we learn some things maybe even about ourselves from this little proverb, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It seems to me that the people of Galilee had what I like to call a little hometown hardness of heart. There was a a resistance to the claims of Jesus and the, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God because they knew him. This is Joseph's kid, right? He's the neighbor. He's that guy that learned carpentry down the street. Nothing special about him. They're they're so familiar. We know this guy. He's one of us. We know his family. He's been around forever. Nothing he does is new or exciting or interesting. Certainly not life-changing. It's just Jesus. He's just the guy down the street. You know, I think the same kind of familiarity can be an obstacle to us today. The same kind of familiarity, maybe, you know, like we've, we're so steep, so versed in the stories of the Bible, and we've heard the story of Jesus dying for sinners so many times that it starts to become old hat, right? And after all, we live in the United States of America, where the Puritans saturated the early colonies with, uh, with biblical preaching and, uh, and Christian principles, where the gospel preaching of guys like Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards brought about the great awakening in, in New England and beyond, where biblical morals shaped the cultural values, if you will, of, uh, of the 20th century in the United States. And so we've heard all this before, right? It's just Jesus. Yeah, oh yeah, God and bless America, all that stuff. We get, we, we've heard all that. So this is, this is not new to us. And I think we can be blinded to the truth in front of our faces, and dismiss the very voice of God himself because we're so stinking used to it. I've heard these stories. Yeah, I've heard John 3:16 a million times. God's love the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And we forget that that is soul-changing, eternity-shaping news. 
that our lives can be totally different and our eternities totally different and a hope that we didn't have because we've heard it so many times. You know, I've even heard people say before, man, if, if only we could see Jesus, if only we had him right here with us, I could see him, I could touch him, I could listen to him, then I'd really, I'd really be able to believe. Right? I'd be able to believe in him if I could just see him. No, you wouldn't. You'd probably look right past him, just like all his neighbors did in Galilee his whole life. If you could see him and touch him and you knew him just like you knew anybody else, he'd be just like anybody else to you. Because that's what happens in our hearts. We get so familiar. We get so hardened. May the Lord forgive us for our boredom and our disinterest in the words and the ways of the Lord. So there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown, and so Jesus heads to Galilee. I think hometown could broadly, uh, more broadly, even apply to the Jewish people at large, because I think there's an intentional contrast that John is portraying here with the people that, that he met with in Samaria, who are not religious people, not like moral people, not the kind of people that you would think are close to God. But their response to the message of Jesus was very open and warm and welcome. And they said, we believe this is the savior of the world. Whereas the people of Jerusalem, remember at the beginning of John's gospel, he said he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. That's where he says, but as many who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And I think those who did receive him, at least to this point in the narrative, are really the ones that you don't expect to receive him. It's, it's the Samaritans who God has given the right to become children of God because they have welcomed him and they have received his message. And in fact, this difference is really important to this story. So I know we haven't even really gotten into the account of the story today. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to notice the connection between Jesus' time in Jerusalem uh, at the Passover and where he's about to be in Galilee. So if you go back to verse, or, or look at verse 45, it says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So that raises the question, where did, what did they see in Jerusalem? And what, how did they respond to Jesus there? What had they seen and how did they respond? So if you'll look back just a little bit to the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This was right after Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. So he had been in the south in Judea enter Jerusalem, cleanse the temple of all the money changers and people selling pigeons and things for sacrifice. And then it says, verse 23 of chapter two, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we learned the first thing, what did they see about Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, they saw signs. John doesn't record them for us, but Jesus apparently did some miraculous signs, perhaps healings, perhaps uh, casting out of demons. We don't know because he doesn't tell us right here. But they saw signs, and their response to the signs was apparently belief. However, look at the very next phrase. They believed when they saw the signs, but verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. The language there in the Greek is really he didn't believe in them. They believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. 
For he himself knew what was in man. So John gives us some insight into the Galileans, people that he's meeting with now, who had seen Jesus in Jerusalem. They were impressed by his signs since they believed when they saw it. But their belief was superficial. It was skin deep. And we learned that because Jesus didn't really trust their belief. They believed in him, but he didn't entrust himself to them. They were interested in Jesus for what he could do, and maybe more potently, what he could do for them, but not for who he was. So I think all of that context is important when we come to this story, because Jesus has gone through Samaria and now is entering Galilee, and many of the people who welcome him are the very same people that saw him in Jerusalem during the feast and believed in him, kind of. We're impressed by his signs, but their belief was superficial. These are the people that Jesus is about to encounter. So let's keep all of that in mind as we're introduced or reintroduced rather to this crowd of Galileans as Jesus enters the town of Cana. So verse 46, it says, he came again to Cana in Galilee. We've seen Cana before. This is where Jesus performed his first sign by turning water into wine. He took the water from these big purification jars at a wedding and he transformed them miraculously into wine as a picture of his own cleansing blood, that he would become the one by whom people could be purified before God. And in fact, this gives a nice kind of a bookend to this section of John's gospel because chapter two begins with Jesus performing a sign in Cana of uh, turning water into wine. And then he cleansed the temple in chapter two. He had this conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three. He met with the Samaritan woman in chapter four. And then we come full circle. He's back in Cana and he's going to perform another sign. And so this section of John's gospel where we've seen Jesus interact with these kind of key aspects of Jewish faith and life kind of comes to a close, if you will, with this uh, miracle that's going to happen in Cana. So now the story begins. Jesus is in Cana, this town in Galilee. And verse 46, the second half, look at this. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. This is a royal Official. This is somebody who works in the court of Herod Antipas, who was a no good, dirty, rotten kind of a guy. So remember, the Roman Empire was kind of broken down into regions, and then each region had its own ruler to kind of take care of thing, the affairs of that area. And Herod Antipas would have been the guy in, in this region. And he is not a good dude. And in fact, he's going to be responsible a little bit later for uh, the executing of John the Baptist. And so, but to know that this guy is a part of Herod's court, we know at least he's probably a man of some means, right? He probably has some resources and some wealth and some things at his disposal. And so there is a man, a a, a royal official whose son was ill. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Galilee, He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this is a man of means who is run out of options. 
Because Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Cana, which is not a short journey in that day. And in fact, we'll learn from later in the story on his return that it would take him at least a full day and overnight because he doesn't return until the day after this encounter with Jesus. So he's come from about 20 miles away because he has heard about Jesus, this Galilean peasant, if you will, with a reputation for power and mercy. And so he comes to Cana in order to make this request of Jesus, which gives some indication both of his situation, that he's not feeling a lot of hope. He's probably pretty desperate. He's probably tried the doctors and all the things that they can figure out and has no option. Then it tells us that he is at the point of death. And it also tells us that there's at least some shred of faith, some shred of hope that this Jesus could make the difference. And so he went to him, verse 47, and asked him to come down and heal his son. Jesus' response, as usual, is very interesting. And it's not what you expect. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's important to note, which you can't tell from the English translation, that both yous in verse 48 are plural. This is where Texans have something that would be helpful. And I'm talking about the plural second person pronoun, y'all. This is like Jesus says, y'all will not believe if y'all don't see a sign. And I don't think Jesus necessarily sounded like a cowboy or anything, but y'all is a helpful tool. I'm just saying we should maybe adopt that into our language here. Okay, so... You. So who's he addressing here? Is he talking just to the, the, the official? He's talking to the crowd, right? Who's this crowd? These are the Galileans who saw him in Jerusalem, were impressed by his signs, but whose belief in him was superficial at best. And they've welcomed him into town because they're like, oh, cool, maybe he'll do some more cool stuff and we can be impressed again. So the official comes to him and says, come down to my house and heal my son. And Jesus, obviously with this man standing there, but in the hearing of everyone says, y'all will not believe unless there's a sign, unless there's some act of power that blows your mind, you will not believe. And I think Jesus is challenging his Galilean audiences, his, his audience, his neighbors, as it were, for their superficial interest in him. It's like he's saying, you're not really interested in me for who I am. You're just interested in what I can do for you. So he calls them out for their hometown hardness of heart, accusing them of being unwilling to see the truth because of their familiarity. We've seen all this. We know all this. Do something cool for us, Jesus. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciple, Thomas. At the end of this gospel, in chapter 20, Jesus has risen from the dead, and there's word kind of circling uh, around the disciples that Jesus is risen, but they haven't all seen him yet. And Thomas goes, unless I see him, unless I can you know, put my hands on the wounds in his wrists and his side, I won't believe. Well, mercifully, Jesus shows up. Jesus walks into their midst and he comes to Thomas and he goes, touch the wounds, put your hand here in my side. And when Thomas sees him, he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. So clearly, his heart has changed. 
His doubts are gone, and he trusts in Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you believe because you have seen. I say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed, happy. Like it's better to not see and still trust in Jesus. There's something deeper, maybe, something more penetrating to the heart about a faith that is anchored in Jesus, even though there has not been a physical, material, tangible encounter where I can't touch Jesus, I can't see Jesus. Maybe I don't even see him perform some big, wondrous, miraculous sign, and yet we've believed. I think there's something truer in that kind of belief that that pleases Jesus. Blessed is the one who has not seen and yet believed. And so he calls out the, the Galilean crowd about their superficial belief. You won't believe unless you see a sign. In verse 49, we find that the, uh, the official is undeterred, not sidetracked by Jesus' challenge to the crowd and presumably to himself, and he persists. Sir, come down before my child dies. It's just going to persist. Come down. Please, Come. And he offers his plan for what Jesus needs to do. Don't we do that? Don't we have it all worked out in our minds what God needs to do? God, if you'll just fill in the blank, if you'll just do this one thing, then I'll take care of the rest. I've got this all figured out. I just need you to do this one piece that I can't quite get. If you'll just do this one thing for me, then I'll take it from here. That's all I need. You know, I think sometimes, I think it might just be better to come to God and just tell him your situation and just go, help. Will you help? However you know to be right and good, help. Just do what you know is best instead of giving him this list of things he has to do. And so Jesus is going to answer the man's request, but not in the way he asked it, not in the way that he expects. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Let's stay with the crowd for just a minute before we look at how the official responded and and how this played out in his life and his family. Let's stay with this crowd of of skeptical, superficial, hometown, hard-hearted Galileans. Jesus had just called them out for their superficial faith and their insistence on seeing signs and wonders. So, So catch this. Jesus is going to miraculously heal this guy's son. He's going to do it, but he's not going to let them see it. Isn't that interesting? You won't believe unless you see a sign. So guess what? I'm not going to show you. Oh, I'm going to heal the guy's son. Don't get me wrong about that, but you're not going to be there for it. There's not going to be, you're not going to follow me down to Capernaum and witness this miraculous Uh, you know, healing and recovery of this boy, you're just going to hear me say, go, your son will live. He's going to let them hear his word and he will heal the boy and then simply require them to make a decision. Did Jesus really do that? Do I think Jesus really healed that little boy? Does Jesus really have the divine power to bring a boy back from the point of death, even without being present? Is Jesus really 
who he says he is. And so Jesus puts this back in their court. You've got to make a choice. I'm not going to give you what you're asking. I'm not going to show you a sign, but you're going to hear my word, and you have to decide. Will you believe it? Will you believe it? So the attention of John and thus the readers now turns to the official. And I want you to observe a couple of things. First, Jesus makes no mention of the man's faith. There are places where Jesus sort of responds, because of your faith, you've been made well, or greater faith have I not seen in all of Israel, and kind of marvels at people's faith. response. He doesn't say anything like that to this guy. He doesn't go, wow, because you've trusted my word, I'm going to do what you say. It just, he doesn't commend him. He doesn't marvel him. He doesn't make any comment. He just heals his son. So his decision to heal his son, what I want you to see here, is that it's just a gift of grace. It's just an act of mercy. He didn't owe it to him. He didn't, the official didn't earn it by his response to Jesus or his approach or his faith. God, Jesus just mercifully, compassionately gave him a gift. Also, think about how he does this. Think about the depth of Jesus' divine power. Jesus isn't even physically present with the dying child. He doesn't ask for any biographical information. What's his name? How old is he? He doesn't ask for an address, like to make sure he doesn't like zap the wrong person with his healing power. Where does he live exactly? He doesn't, he doesn't ask for details of the child's condition. Exactly, exactly what sickness am I healing? No information needed. He knows this man. He knows this man's child, and he is able to appropriate miraculous healing power without respect to geography, biology, or any other human factor that might insert itself between a desperate little boy and the healing mercies of Jesus. There is nothing that can stand in the way. Oh, he's 20 miles away? No problem. Go. He'll live. Oh, I don't know his name? Who cares? He'll live. I know. No problem. Oh, you didn't tell me what sickness he has? Doesn't matter. I'll heal it. This is the power of Jesus. This is the Son of God. Let's look at the man's response. Middle part of verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man's faith is remarkable and simple. He doesn't question the details or doubt Jesus' ability. Are you sure you don't need more information? Are you sure you don't want to come back with me? Be really, you know, I, I promised my wife I wouldn't return if, if I didn't have you with me. Please, will you reconsider? He takes him at his word, and he heads home. Will you imagine this walk home? This is a 20-mile trip. His boy is about to die. He was desperate for help, and he pleaded with Jesus, come and heal him. And Jesus says, he'll live, just go home. So now this guy gets to walk back to Capernaum 20 miles away, with nothing but those five words ringing in his mind. Go, your son will live. He's got a day-long journey to think about it. A long day's opportunity to start to question, doubt whether Jesus had really done anything. Maybe he's kicking himself for even trying. Did I just spend the last day of my son's life 
asking some stranger in Cana for a miracle? What will I find when I get home? Because they didn't have cell phones. He couldn't call and be like, hey, will you tell me if if my son's getting better yet? Because I just talked to this guy, Jesus. He's got a 20-mile journey to wonder and to wait and to see what happens. But he took him at his word, and he went home. Well, we start to see how it unfolds here in verse 51. As he was going down, so I assume he's getting near his house now, his servants met him, and they told him that his son was recovering. Praise God. So he asked them, because you know he's been thinking about this. He asked them the hour. Tell me the moment that he started to get better. When did he begin to recover? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So whatever the sickness was, the fever was the most immediate life-threatening aspect of it. And at the seventh hour yesterday, the fever left. And the father knew that was the moment when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. This confirms that the boy's recovery is no coincidence. He just happened to start getting better about the same time you were talking to that peasant in Galilee. This is the direct result of Jesus' merciful, miraculous intervention. The boy's recovery began the instant Jesus spoke the words. He didn't have to go. He didn't have to make incantations and chants and make potions and dance around and pray to the gods. He just had to say five words. No flashy, nothing flashy, no bolts of lightning from heaven, no whooshing sound, no crowd of onlookers, just five words spoken 20 miles away. Go, your son will live. That's all it takes for Jesus. Just a word. And then we have the decision to make. Are we going to believe him? Are we going to take him at his word? Are we going to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? When he told the woman at the well, when she said, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. When Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. When Jesus shows himself to be the son of God and he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God. I am. Are we going to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Well, on the part of this royal official in Herod's court and his family, we find in verse 54, or excuse me, the end of verse 53, he himself believed and all his household, and all his household, they believed in Jesus. Remember John's purpose statement for writing this gospel? Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, at the end of this gospel, he says, I have written these signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus presents himself clearly as the Son of God. He has divine power that nobody can touch. He has wisdom and knowledge 
about people and lives and situations and needs without anybody filling him in on the details. He is the one who comes anointed by God to bring good news and to bring life and healing. He clearly reveals himself to be the Christ and the Son of God. And so the next phrase, that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to faith. Are you believing that Jesus is the Christ? So this official son and other members of the household also placed their faith in Jesus without having met him, which is perhaps a little bit more like our own experience of faith than a lot of the people that we encounter in the Gospels. People who got to see Jesus and talk to Jesus and hear from him and be in his, his physical presence. Well, we, don't, we don't get to do that today because Jesus is in heaven. We have his spirit, so he's present with us in that way, but it's a different kind of presence, isn't it? It's a different kind of encounter and experience. And so in some ways, the official's family has a little bit more of, a, of an experience like we do, because they didn't see Jesus, they didn't meet him, but they saw what he did. And they saw his compassion and his mercy, and they saw that it was just, just five words. That's all it took, 20 miles away. And so the story ends with John kind of bookending it in verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now that doesn't mean this is literally the second miracle he's ever performed because he already told us that he'd performed some other signs in Jerusalem that he didn't record for us. But John is kind of hanging uh, his story on these key happenings. And he gives us seven of these signs throughout the first 12 chapters of of his gospel. And this is the second of those seven that he's kind of tracking with, a sign that would reveal who Jesus is. And so the question for us today, it really just comes down to exactly, I think, what he was doing with the Galileans, with that audience of, I'm impressed with Jesus, uh, with, with the things that he can do, but I don't really have a personal stake in this. I don't really have any heart level trust or acceptance of who he is and the claims that he makes. And he says, you have to make a choice. I'm not going to show you the sign. I'm just going to tell you about it. And you're just going to have to decide if you believe. And that's what it comes down to for each of us today. Have you believed? And are you believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Whatever your situation is, maybe it's desperate. Maybe you don't see a way out. Maybe you don't feel any hope. Jesus has the answer. Jesus has the ability to give you that, that healing, to, to give you that rescue. Is your faith in Jesus founded on the reality of who he is? Or are you more interested in what he can do, his power, his kind of displays of strength? Are you waiting for Jesus to prove himself to you somehow? I'll believe in him if he'll fill in the blank. Or are you willing simply to take him at his word? You know, the sick son in this story, God is healing. Could it be that you didn't get yours? Maybe the miracle you've been counting on hasn't come. Doubt's creeping in. Maybe God isn't who he says he is. God can handle your pain. He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. Take them to him this morning and ask him to meet you there. Lord, I'm I'm doubting. Lord, I'm not sure. I'm struggling. He'll meet you there. Just ask him for help. 
And if you've never turned your life over to Jesus Christ and called on him as Lord and Savior and rested your soul in his death and resurrection, you can do that today as well. Visit with me after the service. I would love to have a conversation with you along those lines. But the question for each of us, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I taking him at his word? Do I believe that he is who he says he is and that he can offer me the kind of salvation and eternal life that he says he came to bring? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom and your mercy. Thank you for the story of this sick little boy who Jesus miraculously healed with just five little words from 20 miles away. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us of his limitless power and strength, of his deep compassion and love, of his rich grace and mercy towards sinners who do not deserve it. Lord, would you call to each of our hearts through your word, by your spirit, even in these moments, would you call to our hearts to trust you, to lean on you, to hand over to you the things that we're clinging to and wrestling with and worrying about. Call to our hearts and let us respond with faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.